Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mom of the Hard Kid. Today, we're going to be breaking apart the mental health professional's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM-5. They have a new version of the DSM-5 in which these specific diagnoses were sometimes slightly adjusted, but I'm going to go with the original DSM-5 because I have it and I don't have the new one, but... Um, Reactive attachment disorder was not changed, and neither was disinhibited social engagement disorder, which is essentially reactive attachment disorders. Very, very close, but very, very loud sibling. So we're going to just jump right in to the trauma and stressor related disorders. So when you come in here and into this book, you're going to realize a lot of things right off the bat. First off, there are a thousand and a half diagnoses that are available for anybody and everybody. But when you have a child who has been diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, you're going to notice that most of the stuff that your kid does, does not fall under the parameters of this specific diagnosis. And so for those of you who have a child who's been recently diagnosed, I or anyone who's had a child or knows a child who's been diagnosed, this is going to kind of help understand, help you to understand why it's going to be so hard for you to deal with some of the therapists. So when you hit page 265, it gives you a a two paragraph synopsis of what trauma and stressor related um, disorders are. So it says that they have reactive attachment, disinhibited social engagement disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, acute stress disorder, and adjustment disorders. And it goes through and it talks about how some are anxiety or fear-based. Um, it says here, it is clear, however, that many individuals who have been exposed to a traumatic or stressful event exhibit a phenotype in which, rather than anxiety or fear-based symptoms, the most prominent clinical char- characteristics are anhedonic and dysphoric symptoms, externalizing angry and aggressive symptoms, or dissociative symptoms. Because of the variable expressions of clinical distress following exposure to catastrophic or aversive events, the aforementioned disorders have been grouped under separate category of trauma and stress-related stressor-related disorders. Furthermore, it is not uncommon for a clinic a clinical picture to include some combination of the above symptoms with or without anxiety or fear-based symptoms, such as a heterogeneous picture. Oh, sorry. Such a heterogeneous picture has long been recognized in adjustment disorders as well. So social neglect, that is the absence of adequate caregiving during childhood is a diagnostic requirement of both reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder. Although the two disorders share a common etiology, the former is expressed as an internalizing disorder with depressive symptoms with withdrawn behavior, while the latter is marked by disinhibition and externalizing behavior. So for any of you who have listened, I have a child whom I've adopted who is five years old at this time. She has the disinhibited social, oh no, the word just fell out of my head. (laughs) 
disinhibited social engagement. I always want to say social anxiety. So I do always catch she has zero social anxiety doesn't fit. It is social engagement. But I wanted to talk about the two diagnoses. And I want to talk about, you know, the differences and the similarities between the two. But then I want to talk about how your therapist has no idea. Your therapist has no idea, most likely, that there are two diagnoses, but when they give a diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorder, there is a very good chance that they've only read this book or, you know, are kind of leaning on this kind of information. And this is missing so much about what an actual child with reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorder is really like. So we're going to dive in and talk about the diagnostic criteria of reactive attachment disorder. So they have numbers next to it and you have the old numbers and the new numbers um, or the different categories. So it's 313.89. So if you see that in your medical billing or F94.1, that is reactive attachment disorder. And if you come over to disinhibited social engagement disorder, it is 3.3, I mean, 313.89. It is the same, but when you move over into the F, it is F94.2. So when you get a diagnosis of disinhibited social engagement disorder, it has the literal same number as reactive attachment disorder. This is one of the reasons why they give an umbrella term to the both of the diagnoses and say, nope, it's disinhibited. I mean, it's all reactive attachment disorder. It's all bumped in to the same group. Now, I am not a professional. I am not this person. I am just somebody who is a parent to this child and who has gone through the quagmire of somebody who has zero clue what they're talking about, even though they have a degree. And then they tell you that you're the crazy one because they have no clue what they're talking about. So this is coming from a place of snarkiness. And I hope you'll forgive me later when I am not so grumpy. But here's the diagnostic criteria. It's set into different groups and then those groups have subsets. So the first one is A, a consistent pattern of inhibited emotionally withdrawn behavior toward adult caregivers manifested by both of the following. Number one, the child rarely or minimally seeks comfort when distressed. And number two, the child rarely or minimally responds to comfort when distressed. So when you come to social disinhibited social engagement disorder, doesn't have this part. And I think that this adds just a layer of confusion because the child rarely or minimally seeks comfort when distressed is part of the umbrella term of reactive attachment disorder. And what that comes from is there's no home base for these kids. So when they're distressed, they don't instantly think, I'm going to go to mom. They just think, ah, oh, I'm distressed. <laughs> and they run around like a chicken with their head cut off. And they don't seek comfort. And they don't respond to comfort because comfort is not a language that they've learned. So it doesn't provide the same thing because when they were a baby, nobody picked them up and patted them on the back. Or if they did, maybe they have a brain issue and the brain just didn't interpret it that they don't speak comfort. So they don't seek comfort because comfort does not exist to them. And this can happen in both 
reactive attachment disorder, and disinhibited social engagement disorder. Now, alternatively, in disinhibited social engagement disorder, the first area of diagnostic criteria is a pattern of behavior in which a child actively approaches and interacts with unfamiliar adults and exhibits at least two of the following. So this means they are actively going towards adults. So what they're trying to imply here is that in regular reactive attachment disorder, they don't go toward adults. But in disinhibited social engagement disorder, they will. However, it will not be for comfort unless it is just for show. So that's a complicated additive that we'll go into later because we've got a lot to touch on. So at least two of the following. Number one, reduced or absent reticence in approaching and interacting with unfamiliar adults. That means they're just going to go to somebody. I remember one time I was fostering this little boy and he had reactive attachment disorder. And this guy comes to the door and he's selling, he's selling something. He's a salesman. I don't know, maybe solar panels, maybe bugs. I don't, I don't know. And the, my foster child is trying to break out of the door behind me because he wants to see what this guy is all about. He wants to like go out and like show this guy how cool he is. Like it's, it, he just, they feed off of you know, the newness, maybe that newness is a good path. It's it's truly dopamine chasing. And it's truly a grass is greener type of situation where they're like, what is offered over here? I want that. I want that, you know. <laughs> so number two, an overly familiar verbal or physical behavior that is not consistent with culturally sanctioned and with age appropriate social boundaries. So climbing into somebody else's lap, you don't even know them. They just have the French fries that you like. So you're climbing into their lap. That's a very toddler type behavior. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really move out of these kids. You'll find a lot of these kids are stuck in toddler when it comes to a lot of these behaviors. Number three, diminished or absent checking back with adult caregiver after venturing away, even in unfamiliar settings. So if you have a normal child, and I use the term normal and I don't care, I'm, I don't know how else to explain, um, regular kids, I mean, it all is going to sound bad if you're, if you're sensitive about it. But kids that have grown up in a mentally st- stable way, but it's not even always that. That's why I, I feel like I can't even lock it in. It's not even the mentally stable ones. It's the ones who don't, every other kid who doesn't have reactive attachment disorder, not every kid, but but there are a lot of children who when they're in an unfamiliar setting will like cluster towards their mom. They'll be a little bit uncomfortable, even if it's only for a few seconds. They'll kind of just be like, okay, I've gauged my surroundings and I'll go. Um, Of course, there's always, you know, some exceptions. That's why they make it two of the following. But in in these kids, they don't even take that second. They just are like, look at that. And they go, which is has to do with their inhibitions, which can be an ADHD thing, which is very connected to these diagnoses. And number four, a willingness to go off with unfamiliar adults with minimal or no hesitation. (laughs) So that looks like it's completely different than reactive attachment disorder. But the truth is, even though it is completely different, the disinhibited social engagement is still having the not 
comfort seeking. They don't seek comfort. I remember one time my daughter full on runs. She's finally tall enough that she runs full speed into the countertop and it like knocks her back really hard. And you can tell it really hurt. And she doesn't feel a whole ton of pain back at that time because her brain was so everywhere. She just didn't feel a lot of pain. But this hurt her. And so then she's so stunned. So she goes running off up the stairs and into the living room and down and she just runs. And every other kid would come to you. But this kid just runs. And this is after she's been with us for like almost two years. So it's not like she doesn't know I'm there. It just doesn't it hasn't that part of her brain never turned on. So let's move on to section B of reactive attachment disorder, a persistent social and emotional disturbance characterized by at least two of the following. Number one, minimal social and emotional responsiveness to others Two, limited positive affect. And number three, episodes of unexplained irritability, sadness, fearfulness that are evident during non-threatening interactions with adult caregivers. So positive affect just basically means, and I'll read you this um, definition, one's propensity to experience positive emotions and interact with others with life's challenges in a positive way. So um, some of these kids are not going to be able to put themselves in a place where they can interact with people in any kind of positive way. Well, in my child, uh, that is her go-to and she is amazing at it. So that one wouldn't fit for us. Minimal social and emotional responsiveness to others doesn't fit for us because she is absolutely socially responsive to people. Emotionally, if they are physically hurt, she is emotionally responsive to them, maybe from that countertop experience. But she uh, has a very hard time understanding stuff, though she is improving as we go on. So, but the part here where it says episodes of unexplained irritability, sadness, or fearfulness that are evident even during non-threatening interactions with a caregiver. Now, what I think they're trying to imply in this case is that they're scared of adults. And there is a part in The Boy Who Was Raised as a, as a Dog where it says um, that, you know, they expect them to be timid and there's a submissiveness going on. That might occur with regular reactive attachment disorder. This is the inhibited version. This is when in my opinion, they're stuck in flight where they're just afraid and everything makes them afraid. But again, my little one does not have this one. So I'm going to move on to B under disinhibited social engagement disorder. The behaviors in criteria A are not limited to impulsivity, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but also includes socially disinhibited behaviors. Um, I'm just going to tell you, there is a gigantic <laughs> difference between a child that has severe ADHD and a child who has trauma ADHD because there's there's no logic, there's no coming, there's no awareness, there's no anything. And there are kids with pretty severe ADHD and they can be really overwhelming and share a lot of the similar behaviors. But when it comes to the point where your child is like actively like 
you know, climbing in other people's cars that are strangers because they, you know, have something shiny and they want that shiny thing. And, and look, mom, here's a stuffed horse. And look, they have the stuffed horse that I want. I need to go home with them kind of things like you. When you mix that all in, it really becomes quite an overwhelming and different situation. So back to reactive attachment disorder, section C. The child has experienced a pattern of extremes of insufficient care as evidenced by at least one of the following. Number one, social neglect or deprivation in the form of persistent lack of having basic emotional needs such as comfort or for comfort, stimulation, and affection met by caregiving adults. Number two, repeated changes of primary caregivers that limit opportunities to form stable attachments. For example, frequent changes in foster care. Number three, rearing in unusual settings that severely limit opportunities to form selective attachments, such as institutions of high child to caregiver ratios. So in a sense, like an, like an orphanage, like, like when there's not enough caregivers for children. Now, when you go to disinhibited social engagement disorder, this section C is exactly the same. It is caused by the exact same thing. But again, the children are not reserved. They are, <laughs> they are crazy. <laughs> They're crazy. But when it comes to the mental stuff that comes along with this, I really think there's a lot of overlap, even though one is chasing people and the other one is hiding from them. I think there's a lot of mental stuff that kind of sits the same. Now it goes on in weird verbiage from this point where in section D it says the care in criterion C is presumed to be responsible for the disturbing behavior, the disturbed behavior in criteria A. And E says the criteria are not met for the autism spectrum disorder, which there are a lot of overlaps with that. When it comes to emotional regulation, there are a lot of overlaps um, with their inability to emotionally regulate, their inability to to understand things. There, there really is quite a bit of overlap. Um, but, and when, when I imagine that when you are more reserved, it's probably more of a concern because these kids who are socially aggressive, <laughs> um, I imagine that's not something that people worry about in quite the same way. But it also says here in in the reactive attachment section F, the disturbance is evidence before the age of five years. And in G, the child has a development till age of at least nine months. So what they're saying is, it's got to have happened. And your child has to be over the age of nine months so that you can kind of see how this child is reacting to stuff. Because at six months, you might not be able to tell. But in so disinhibited social engagement disorder, they have the exact same section D uh, about how you assume that criterion A was caused by criterion B, I mean C. And then they have E, that the child has a developmental age of at least nine months. So it doesn't say that the disturbance is evidenced before five years it is something that is harder to tell because these kids have, you know, a social, an ability to be social. So as you go through, they do have two pages of information about this. But, <laughs> and, and some of it's fairly interesting, but one 
section is called differential diagnosis. And this is when they talk about the autism spectrum disorder. And so a big chunk of this isn't even about reactive attachment disorder. So they kind of go through the diagnostic features. And this is where I think we have a lot of confusion when it comes to actually having a mental health care professional be in charge. I'm going to read a little bit of this in the reactive attachment disorder. Uh, Children with reactive attachment disorder are believed to have the capacity to form selective attachments. That means some people are going to be fine and some people are not going to be fine. And you'll find that evidenced because usually the primary caregiver is the one that they have a hard time with. However, because of limited opportunities during early development, they fail to show the behavioral manifestations of selective attachment. That is, when distressed, they show no consistent effort to obtain comfort, support, nurturance, or protection from caregivers, as in like by caregivers. And then it goes on to say that the kids will respond with a minimal comfort interaction. So then it says this, this disorder is associated with the absence of expected comfort seeking and response to comforting behaviors. As such, the children with reactive attachment disorder show diminished or absent expression of positive emotions during routine interactions with caregivers. In addition, their emotional re- emotional regulation <laughs> capacity is compromised and they display episodes of negative emotions of fear, sadness, or irritability. Okay. <laughs> if any of you have a child with a severe reactive attachment disorder, that last sentence will make you laugh because what you are experiencing is crazy rage and explosive punishments for years. Like that is just the wussiest language I've ever heard about this. So this is what your therapist is hearing. This is what your therapist is learning. And your therapist has no clue that this is absolutely hollow. It is like a a piece of Swiss cheese, but all you have are the little lines around the holes. You're missing most of the, you're missing most of your cheese here. (laughs) This This is ridiculous. So when you go back to disinhibited social engagement disorder, their diagnostic features is so short. I will read you the entirety of this paragraph. The essential feature of disinhibited social engagement disorder is a pattern of behavior that involves culturally inappropriately overly familiar behavior with relative strangers under criterion A. This overly familiar behavior violates social boundaries of the culture. A diagnosis of disinhibited social engagement disorder should not be made before children are developmentally able to form selective attachments. For this reason, a child must have a developmental age of at least nine months. You guys, (laughs) that's no information at all. So your therapist has no information at this point. So it goes on to talk about associated features supporting the diagnosis. And this is kind of where they talk about neglect and um, how you might not be able to see the signs of neglect Um, and here in this last bit, it says, thus disinhibited social engagement disorder may be seen in children with a history of neglect who lacked attachments or who 
whose attachments to their caregivers range from disturbed to secure. So this is nothing. This provides no information that is helpful to the therapist. It is absolutely ridiculous. But then you come down to development and course. And this is a really interesting part because this is, I don't know, kind of where you get the most information about it. And yet there, and there's a, because it's the biggest section and they have a section on risk and prognostic factors where it talks about how social neglect is a a requirement and um how children who's um can have improvement if if their caregiving environment is improved. Like, so it talks about that in the, in the risk and prognostic factors, but I want to really touch right now on the development and course. So it says here, and I thought this was really fascinating. It says here, however, there is no evidence that neglect beginning after the age of two is associated with manifestations of this disorder. Now I'm going to enter into my own head here and say, This is why I draw the conclusion that there is something about these babies when these babies are neglected and neglect can mean in our instance, I'll just tell you our instance, our little lady was left in her room for most of the day. Now her parents would come in and they would feed her sometimes. And I think they would even play with her sometimes, but many times for hours unknown, uh, they Uh, recreationally drug used and became addicted and would leave her alone in her room for unknown periods of time. So when they would come in, she would learn to read their face and to be adorable and to try and as a survival method, I I assume, to be outgoing because, oh my gosh, look, there's a person, this person can save me, this person, I, you know, I I I think that I think that that's one of the reasons why they're so desirous to get the attention of people because I think there's something hardwired inside them that says I need to get the attention of this person I need it to survive I and so when it says this one sentence there's no evidence that neglect beginning after the age of two is associated with manifestations of this disorder. That is where my head goes, is they are saying, I need attention or I'm going to not survive. And that it's it's just a response that they have. It also says in the prevalence that it says that even in high risk populations, the condition only occurs in about 20% of children. So when you are in a situation where kids have the, say you have 10 kids that have the exact same um, experience, only two of them are going to end up with this diagnosis, two out of 10. Because I, I also believe that it has to do with their personality. I think there are some kids who, who can't respond this way because it's not in their personality and other kids who have a more naturally tenacious uh, attitude inside just as who how they were constructed and I think it's really fascinating too because my little lady has a tenacity that is unmatched I've never seen someone keep going for something I think it's really been to her 
benefit in her credit as as she's improved over the years. But (laughs) one must be cautious, because it can also be absolutely awful, because she will try bad things very, very often as well. So here it says at the end of this paragraph, and there's some good information in this paragraph, and I highly recommend anyone that um, is going to a therapist to, to ha- have the therapist get out their DSM-5 and read it with you because you want them to be aware and you want to be aware of what they're aware of. And you, you can start a conversation and say, hey, you know, this this is not what I'm seeing. This is only 1% of what we see at home. These There are other factors at play because in our instance, there are other factors at play. If somebody said, oh, your child has disinhibited social engagement disorder, and I'd be like, yeah, they wouldn't know that that included all of the other stuff. You know, they wouldn't know that includes trying to throw animals off of balconies. They wouldn't know that includes, you know, a lot of other deep issues that go on in my child's head. So it can be really hard for any of these mental health professionals to have a clue because this is, this is all they get. The truth is my little lady, she has eight diagnoses, but she should have 14. If you go through these books and actually look at the serious, not just the basic stuff, the serious issues that she has, you'll see that she has so many that have not even been touched. One of which I'm going to kind of reference here in a minute. So it says at the youngest ages across cultures, children show reticence when interacting with strangers. And it kind of goes about how they don't do this with disinhibited social engagement disorder. Verbal and physical overfamiliarity continue through middle childhood accompanied by, and I quote, inauthentic expressions of emotions. Now, this is one of those ones where as a mother of a child like this, I'm like, inauthentic? You mean, (laughs) what I think you meant to write was absolutely ridiculous, overly dramatic tantrums and rages where you can go for four straight hours of screaming and ranting and raving because they just want to piss you off. They're not really, they're not really that mad. They're just mad at you. So you get a gigantic response, but they can also be overly charming, falsely charming. They can be falsely sad. My little lady can pull tears out of the air. Like, it doesn't matter. And the only reason I know this is because sometimes she glitches and sometimes she thinks what she's doing is funny and she has to recompose herself and she'll bust right back into it. It's... Once you see these signs, you're like, oh my gosh, she played me. Oh my gosh, how will I ever trust her again? And the truth is you probably shouldn't. Like, just don't trust her again. Like, you you can be kind, do not trust her. Because the inauthentic expressions of emotion are all the time, every day, and they're ridiculous. One of the things I do, because I know that she's lying most of the time that she's expressing her emotions. Not every time. Sometimes you can tell she's not lying now. But because she does it 80 plus percent, I let her because the truth is I need her to be a functional member of society as an adult. And so if she's responding in ways 
that are socially acceptable. Like say that she's pretending she's really sad that she hurt someone's feelings. She's not sad. She just doesn't want to get punished. So she'll say that she's sad. So that's okay with me. I'm okay with that because I want her to be able to function in society. I might not be able to fix every little piece of her and that's okay. I just want her when she's an adult, if she offends somebody to know that the proper response is, I'm so sorry, because that is how you function in society. It's, it's a good idea. So I let, I just let it go. But what it says here, it says in adolescence, indiscriminate behavior extends to peers. And this is concerning, of course, as a parent, relative to healthy adolescents, adolescents with the disorder have more superficial peer relationships and more peer conflicts. Adult manifestations of the disorder are unknown. And I'm going to say absolutely, they are not unknown. Most people who have a child who has reached adulthood, this diagnosis shifts from reactive attachment disorder as an umbrella term to to borderline personality disorder or to antisocial personality disorder. Now, from what I understand, antisocial personality is more what the men tend to go towards and borderline personality tends to be what the women go towards, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Now we're going to go into that more too, because truly when I say my child has reactive attachment disorder, what I mean is my child has reactive attachment disorder, disinhibited social engagement disorder, and borderline personality disorder. Because when you go through the symptoms of borderline personality disorder, my child has all of those symptoms. But let's move on to the very end here, because it talks about comorbidities. And comorbidities just means that you have something else going on at the same time. So the comorbidities of reactive attachment disorder are malnutrition, like medical conditions that often occur because these children have been neglected, um, depression. And, and I just think, whoa, there's, I mean, how do you, you don't have ADHD maybe in there, but, <laughs> but when you go to the disinhibited social engagement disorder comorbidities, they do have ADHD and cognitive delays and language delays. But I, when I go to my support groups, and I'm getting all of my information from support groups at this time. When I go to my support groups, there is rarely a parent in which these are the only symptoms that their children have. Rarely, usually, you come to a support group because you have massive amounts of other things that are very overwhelming to you. And I, I just, if, if I could rewrite this, I would include a lot of behavioral issues. And I would just say it's common for these types of behavioral issues. But I would also include the comorbidities as PTSD and borderline personality disorder. You know, it's, it's really funny because I'm going to touch on that again. I brought up to one of my child's therapists and I said, she has all the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. And this therapist said, um, yeah, well, we're not going to assign her that diagnosis until she's older because, you know, she's a kid. And I thought, 
you know, if she has all of these things, can we just treat it? Because if you're being a therapist to someone with borderline personality disorder, and you're doing certain things for them, and those things are helpful, please do them for my child. You don't need to give her a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. You don't even need to give her a diagnosis of of disinhibited social engagement disorder. You don't need to give her a diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder. But if she has these issues, for heaven's sake, can you please help her with these issues? And not just say, you know what, when she's 18, we will then switch her diagnosis and we will address these issues. No, that is not acceptable to me. I hate that I am at a point in my life where I have to look up in the DSM-5. I have to research these things and I have to put it together because that should be your job as the therapist. Your job shouldn't be sitting in front of a computer and talking me through my feelings. Your job should be diving through this book, figuring out the pieces to understand what is happening with my child. And then you should be going out and reading absolutely every article you have time for on each of your patients' stuff. Maybe you shouldn't stuff yourself so full of chat time. Maybe you should figure out what's going on with these children. And that is really snarky and I've headed down a snarky lane. So I am going to stop this derailment (laughs) and crazy train and say thank you for listening this long and I will get into other things later, maybe after I calm down. But if any of you are a parent of a child with reactive attachment, I think, or any kind of hard, difficult thing, and you haven't had the right support, then I think you know what I mean. Because we would all love to be able to solve all of our problems with special breathing techniques and additional hugs. But sometimes the issues are far more complex. Thank you for listening and I hope you have a great day.